Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Calvary Church. We're so glad uh, that you're here. I'm just so grateful for that last song. As we were singing it together as a community, um, man, I just, so many things to be thankful for what God has done. And one of the things for which I'm personally grateful for what God's done, I'm just kind of grateful for uh, the past nine or ten years, uh, what God's done in our community and for those people who have been here for 50 years, just their engagement and their ongoing commitment and deepening, and for the new families, um, and just how God has worked at Calvary for like, I think, 130 some odd years, uh, and has worked over the past nine years, <clears throat> and is working today, and will continue to work in the future. Um, and I'm grateful for that. And every marriage has been impacted by the past 130 years here at Calvary or whatever, uh, every family that generation after generation, kids and grandkids have worshiped Jesus, everybody who came into this room from another faith tradition or no faith tradition uh, and heard about Jesus. Um, that is all the work of the Lord. And so I'm grateful for that. And as we'll talk about later, I'm grateful for how over the past several years, he's worked in specific ways and meaningful ways. So just grateful for what he's done in our lives individually, what our lives corporately. Uh, our motto is, we have a few mottos, I guess, right? But what we want to do on Sunday is we want you to grab a bulletin, bring your Bible, grab a bulletin, bring your Bible. We got some notes in there if you take note on the sermon. So I hope you've done that, and we're about to jump into the Bible as we continue our series. Uh, and everything that you ever wanted to know about Calvary Church will not be in the bulletin. But there will be some things that you may want to know about Calvary Church that's in there. And then a way for you to take notes as we continue uh, working through God's Word, kind of verse by verse, chapter through chapter, here at Calvary. So let me pray, <clears throat> and we'll get into it. Uh, Father, I am grateful for what you've done, and you get all the glory for uh, how over the years and the decades you've worked in my life to uh, shape me and grow me, and you're continuing to do that with all the things I need to do better. Your steadfast love never changes, and you're patient and you're kind, and there's grace and there's mercy, and for the grace and mercy you've shown to everybody in this room, and the grace and mercy you've shown to our church and the way you've allowed uh, people to hear your word uh, for over a century through this community, uh, at first in Bridgeport and now in Trumbull. Uh, you've worked mightily, and so we're just grateful for what you've done. And I pray that for people who are wondering this morning as they're waiting on something, whether you are still doing something in their life, that your spirit will give them uh, the patience and the foundation to continue waiting well <clears throat> and uh, persevering and enduring as they seek your direction or your working in their lives. Thanks for the opportunity, Father, to press into your word now, and we trust the spirit to work and uh, you to continue to shape us individually and collectively through what your word says. So thank you, Father. We pray this trusting in the spirit and for the glory of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're going to start a new series in the book of 2 John, right? We are in the three, and we're in the three because there are three letters. There's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John that we're working through today. We are in 2 John. If, you're, if you have an actual Bible and there's humidity in your house, your pages might stick together and you might miss it because this is what we're going to look at is a letter. And it's a very, very, very tiny letter. In the original Greek, there were about 300 words. 
And it was probably a letter that was able to fit on a piece of papyrus this size. Uh, so short little letter, 300 words, but this short letter that was written so many years ago is so relevant and timely and current for what every single one of us is facing today. Every single one of us, whether you're a Christian or not Christian, been in church for one hour or a century, every single one of us <clears throat> is facing something in our story that is addressed in this letter. It's relevant to something we're facing as a community and culture, and it's relevant because what the letter of 2 John talks about is this idea of truth, the idea of truth. 300 words are sniper-focused to remind people a long time ago about the importance of truth in their own lives and in the lives of their church community. And those words and that reminder is so important today. <clears throat> because today, right, the reality is that truth, whether there even is truth, what one group holds to as truth, just this whole concept of truth is being questioned it's being challenged, it's being doubted, it's being pushed up against, it's being minimized, it's being abandoned. And so it's being all that happening to people individually and all that happening in groups of Christians as churches. And so it's relevant. And I was always kind of thinking about that, right? I think sometimes we can overstate things. Uh, and we're certainly facing challenges to truth today. But most scholars think this letter was written sometime between 90 to 95 A.D. Now, if my math with my iPhone calculator is correct, that means that 1,928 years ago, this letter was written, and this letter was written because 1,928 years ago, truth was being attacked. Right? There's this idea that there's pushback against truth is not something new to us. It's something that has been going on for so long and it was so important then, it's so important now that God inspired somebody to write a letter to a group of people to remind them of it, which is meant to remind them and is still a reminder to you and to I today. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to do what we do every Sunday. We're going to open up the Word. We're going to study, okay, what, what's going on in the letter. And then we're going to think about some applications for us individually and then some applications for us as a community when it comes to truth and what it can do for us, considering where we've been, considering what might yet be on the horizon for us. Uh, and that's what's in store. So if you got your Bible, if you got your device, flip it open to 2 John. If you need a Bible, there's some Bibles out there in the lobby you can grab. And I'm going to read it all, and it's going to be okay because it's like super short. And then we're going to work through it together. Here's what's written. The elder... To the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I was writing a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. 
Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked ways. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. He was a good lawyer. Never put anything in writing. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. I'm just telling you, that is the most profound thing you may ever hear, right? I have much to tell you, but I ain't going to put it on ink and paper. (sighs) Okay. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So, 300 words in the Greek, a few things to kind of take care of as housekeeping, like, okay, who wrote this and who is it written to? We explored that when we came to 1 John, and... In a lot of New Testament letters, what it does, it says, like, I, Peter, write to you, or I, Paul, write to you. Here it's coming from the elder, the elder. Now, there's some scholars uh, who think that this is a, not the Apostle Paul, John who wrote this letter. The Apostle John wrote 1 John, and he wrote the Gospel of John. And some people, some scholars think, well, this isn't that John because he's using this phrase elder to distinguish it. Um, but most every scholar doesn't think that. Most every scholar thinks that the same John, the Apostle John, who wrote 1 John, is the same person who wrote this John, right? The Apostle who followed Jesus around. There's a lot of reasons for that, similar themes, similar writing structures, similar syntax. So, it, man, it's, it seems very likely, highly likely, that the guy who followed Jesus around for several years is the same writer of this book. And then the question is, well, who is it written to? Because it says, to the elect lady and her children. Again, there's scholars who kind of have some different thoughts. Well, it's to one individual woman, it's to a specific group of people. But again, most theologians, most scholars, since the very early days of the church fathers, think that really there's not an actual lady that's being addressed, but rather, uh, this is just kind of this metaphor, this is a symbolic reference to a local church to a local church. Throughout the New Testament, there's all sorts of times that local bodies of believers are referenced in terms of uh, a feminine metaphor or simile or analogy. One of those. I'm not smart enough to know which, right? There's times when local churches are referred to as a wife, when it's referred to as the bride of Christ, when it's referred to as a mother or daughter. And so what most scholars think and what seems to be going on is John is not writing to a specific lady. He's writing to a local church, and he's using this metaphor of a, of a, right, of a lady and her children, meaning a church and the people who are sitting in that church. The apostle John likely wrote this letter to a specific church and to the Christians in that church because there was something that he, through the inspiration of God, wanted to make sure they got, that they knew because of what they were facing. So what does John, through the inspiration of God, tell this church and the people in it? He starts by, in the first verse, saying, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom... I love in truth. And not only I, but also all those who know the truth. What he's saying is he begins the letter by saying, look, man, I love you guys. 
And it's not just me who loves you guys, right? But everybody else who knows the truth loves you guys. He's writing to this church and saying, I have a connection with you. I have a relationship with you, right? There, there is a link that I have with you. There is some unity that I have with you. And then he moves further, and he just, just doesn't leave it broadly. He tells them the reason for that love and the reason for that connection and the reason <clears throat> for that unity. And he tells them that right here. Because, because, right, I love you guys. We're connected. We're, we're united. And the reason that we are united and connected, that apostle is telling that church a long time ago, is because of the truth. Because of the truth. The truth, he's reminding them, is what unites us. The truth, he's telling them, is what causes a group of diverse people to have a relationship together. We know from later sections of the letter that the truth that he's talking about is the truth about Jesus and the truth of the gospel and the truth of what, who he was and what his death did. But truth isn't just limited to that, right? This can be more broadly understood to be all biblical truth. And what he's saying is, hey, people in the church, we are all united. We're united by one thing. We're united by the truth about Jesus and the truth of the gospel and the truth from God. And that is what connects and joins and welds us together. Truth. Truth. Here's the first observation. The first observation probably is pretty simple from this, but God's truth is the ultimate basis for unity among Christians. God's truth is the ultimate basis for unity among Christians. The truth that Jesus came and incarnated himself and was a substitute for us, the truth of the gospel, the truth that we receive that, all the truth that God has said, that truth is the ultimate basis for unity among Christians. I kind of repackage that a little different way and say this. God's truth is what brings Christians together in unity and what keeps them in unity. In the ideal, <clears throat> God's truth is what brings Christians together in unity and what is intended to be the crazy glue that holds them together in unity. Do you remember when you were like in somewhere between fourth to sixth grade and you were in science class and it was magnet week? Remember magnet week? Man, I loved me some magnet week, right? And, and I, magnets are fascinating things. But, but have you ever done the deal where you get like a super powerful magnet? Right? I can remember when I was like a little kid, I'd get, I don't know, somewhere. I'd go to some silly store and get like the world's most powerful magnet for 75 cents. It was like that big. But then you'd go around to like your parents' desk. you get to your dad's desk with all those paper clips. And you'd stick the magnet into the paper clip. Anybody ever do that? You guys have not lived. <laughs> Right? You, you stick the magnet into the paper clip and you pull it up. And you know what happens? All these other paper clips are stuck together and they're stuck to the magnet. Because the magnet is the force that is pulling those different things and causing them to be connected together. And at the same time, it is also the force that is continually holding those things together. 
for you and for me if you're a Christian. God's truth is the magnet. God's truth is the magnet that is intended to go into a group of people with all sorts of different stories and all sorts of different backgrounds and pull that group together and not only pull that group together, but be the force that continually works to hold that group together. What John says is, I love you guys. I have a relationship with you guys. I'm connected with you guys because of God's truth. And then it's interesting what comes from that unity and that connection and that joining of a group of Christians from God's truth, holding them together and pulling them together. Well, he tells them that in verse 3. He tells them the benefit that flows from that unity linked with truth. And he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father. This is really, really interesting. Because if you've ever read the New Testament, you're kind of like, Peter, that's not that interesting. Like every letter has that. A lot of letters have it. But a lot of letters that have this phrase, it's something that the author is praying for his people. In most letters, what the author says, and I pray that you will know the grace and the peace and the love, it's something he wants them to experience. This is different because what John is saying is, hey, church, to these guys, we are drawn together through the truth of God. We are meant to be held together by truth and a benefit to a community that is held together in truth and drawn together as truth. And the truth is what is that in those relationships and in that community and in that body, there will be blessings. There will be grace. There will be mercy that's experienced. There will be peace that's experienced among that diverse body that is unified because of truth and held together because of truth. They will experience grace together as a body. Mercy together as a body and peace together as a body. Second principle from this is that Christians united in truth will experience blessings from those united relationships. Have you ever been in a minivan with your family? And man, you've gone on a road trip to wherever, and it has been blissful. I don't know if you're laughing because you've never experienced that. Once in my life. No. Right? Have you ever experienced that? Everybody gets in the car. Everybody's had a nice breakfast. Everybody's perfectly caffeinated. Everybody's happy about where they're going. Everybody's happy about, man, where they're going to go to lunch. Everybody's excited about the trip. Everybody's laughing. When you're in the minivan on a family road trip like that, man, you're like, I want to be in this place. I want to, man, let's just keep driving because this is good. If you see, some of you have never experienced that. And right now you're thinking, ooh, I wish I could experience that. Probably most of you have experienced family road trips where you would not use the word blissful to describe the experience. Some of you husbands and wives are elbowing each other because you're thinking about your 10-minute trip to church here this morning a few minutes ago. When you are in a family road trip, in a minivan, squelched together, 
And the first thing you start when you get in the minivan is, we've left too late. Why didn't you do it? And it's like, and then it goes to, I don't want to go to Chick-fil-A for breakfast. I want you to go to, I don't, you always, what about, you do not want to be in that minivan any longer. You want to bail, you want to jet, you want to pop smoke, you want to get out. And you know what? When you're in a group of Christians and all they're doing is fighting and fussing, and you are, it's like, bro, where's the door? But, but, when you're with a group of Christians and there's unity and there's grace that comes from that and there's peace and there's the ability for people to disagree about things without being disagreeable and you laugh together, and you weep together, and when we do act unkindly, we pursue forgiveness with one another, and we give forgiveness to one another. When you're in a body like that, it's like, man, let's just keep driving down this road forever as a church. And what God is reminding Christians of is, hey, that's possible. It's not just an ideal, it can be a real. There is a way for a group of Christians together to experience grace, mercy, and peace. But they will not be able to experience genuine grace, mercy, and peace together in a unified way unless there is something critical about truth that is anchored within them both individually and then together collectively. John moves on, and he, and he links back to his ideas from last week, and in verses 5 through 6, he tells people how to live. He says, hey, if you believe in Jesus, what flows from that is love. We spent 47 minutes last week talking about that, so we're not going to revisit that, but you can go back and check out last week's uh, sermon about that. And then he moves into this other idea, right? He's told them there's unity. He told them what that unity comes from. He kind of goes back to this sidebar, linking back, and says, hey, you should love. But, th- but then he comes come back to this idea of truth. And in verse 7, he gives them a warning. And it's a warning for them. It's a warning for me individually. It's a warning for you individually. It's a warning for us collectively. And, and here's the warning, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Many deceivers, he's saying, back in 90 AD, have gone out into the world. And so there is an active attack, he's saying, back in 90 AD on truth. Now, in their story, there were these people who were in churches united together, And a pocket of those people started to believe something that wasn't true about Jesus. And that pocket didn't keep silent. Instead, what that pocket did is they started to fund preachers and, you know, circuit riders to go around to all the churches to try to tell these these newest heresies. And they were actively going out to churches to try to infiltrate the churches and teach in the churches and spread this false doctrine in the churches which attacked truth. And John's saying and reminding them, hey, I know you guys are under it, and there's deceivers right now, he's telling these guys, who are actively trying to attack truth. And the result of that will be you will be lose some of the blessings that you could experience from truth. Third observation is truth will be attacked. 
And with each attack for those people on truth, boom, they had to make a choice. They had to make a choice individually. Are we going to keep holding to God's truth? But they didn't only had to make a choice individually. They had to make a choice corporately and collectively. Are we as a group going to continue to hold God's truth as what, like a bunch of paper clips, draws us to one another and holds us to one another. In, I don't know, 162 Greek words so far, here's what we've seen, right? Three things that we've seen so far, that God's truth is the ultimate basis for unity among Christians. We've seen that Christians united in truth will experience blessings from those unified relationships, and we've seen that truth will be attacked. So, how do those realities from a letter written a long time ago line up with where we find ourselves in this cultural moment? How do those realities line up with where you individually find yourself in this cultural moment and where we as a body of believers find ourselves in this cultural moment. One of my favorite places to go is Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. My wife's family uh, for generations has had this little rustic cabin there on the water. It's beautiful. And uh, through the Many years, we've been able to pull a 21-foot Boston whaler up there and zip around uh, because despite the story that I will tell you later, I'm actually a quasi-competent boater. My story later will not make that sound like it. But we've been able to pull this Boston whaler up there. My wife's uh, family's cabin is on a part of the lake known as the Broads. It is this this va- the lake has lots of little inlets, bays, tributaries, not where we are. So it is just the, the vast open waters. And so that means when you're in the vast open waters, man, when a storm comes, it gets, it gets rough. I mean, it gets ocean waves coming in at high tide at Mesquamacut rough. So every year, you know, there's this challenge of, hey, we got to make sure this boat, this 21-foot whaler, when you got gas in that thing, it is a heavy vessel. you got to make sure that this thing is moored or this thing is held well when those storms come in. So in the course of the years, trying to figure out how to do that well, I've learned a little bit about boat moorings. Have you ever seen the float ball mooring floating either in a lake or in the ocean? Anybody ever seen that? Good. One of you. You guys ever seen the ocean? Well, here's the reality. You, you can look at that float ball mooring, and you might think, oh, that's secure. But what I never knew is that at the bottom of those, there are different weights, there are different blocks of anchors that are dependent upon what you intend to tie to it. Did you know that? So if you intend to tie a sunfish, a little sailboat, to the float mooring, you got like an anchor at the bottom of the water like this. If you intend to tie a 30-foot boat to it, you got an anchor, you got a box in the bottom of the water like the size of the stage, right? Just because there's a ball on top doesn't necessarily tell you what's below. And, and that's important because here's what sometimes can happen. If it's not the right size, heaviness, and weight at the bottom, then when you tie your boat up to the float mooring, if it's not heavy enough to hold you, what can end up happening is in Lake Winnipesaukee, that we have a float mooring that is intended for a little sailboat. 
21-foot whalers loaded with gas are not little sailboats this big. If I were to tie the whaler up to that, what would end up happening is this. Did you know what happened? When that storm came, it would The waves, the wind would hit that whaler. And over time, because the whaler wasn't held down, it would start to drift. Over time, it would actually start to pull the mooring, and when the whaler drifts, when a boat drifts off the mooring, when it's only a little bit offshore with all sorts of rocks, it can get into all sorts of problems. Over time, when those waves and storms repeatedly come day after day after day and hit something that is not properly tied down, that thing over time will drift. And when it drifts, damage can happen. When it drifts, damage can happen. For a lot of Christians over the years, and you guys know my heart, right? There's a way to be gracious and loving and kind while also saying I don't agree. So I'm not up here being a ranting, angry uh, vengeful, hateful person who believe different truth things than I do. But I'm up here just making the general observation that for a lot of Christians, in a lot of ways, man, we've had waves hit us, and waves from our culture and other worldviews have caused some Christians to drift from truth. I mean, we're getting pummeled pummeled with waves of untruth. School systems are trying to decide whether we should call people who have children mothers or birthing persons. We're getting pummeled with all sorts of different views about sexuality. We're getting pummeled by all sorts of different views about life and whether life is valuable in the womb, whether life is valuable after the womb, pummeled, pummeled, pummeled. We are getting waves hitting up against us about what tolerance means. Here's what tolerance used to mean. And this is a good definition. This is a good thing. This definition is what Christians should ascribe to. Tolerance used to be the willingness to accept the existence of different ideas. Tolerance used to be the willingness to accept the existence of different ideas. That's not bad. Throughout Scripture, that's the reality. But tolerance over time, the waves have shifted, and now what the idea of tolerance is, it means you have to willingly accept every idea. Not just accept the existence of different views. That's okay. We live in a culture where there's different worldviews. It's okay to accept that there's different worldviews. Being tolerant in that definition isn't bad, but now tolerance is, no, no, no. You've got to actually accept every view as equally valid. And waves are buffering us. And as we've been facing those waves individually, man, the past three years corporately for churches, woo, baby, take your vitamins because it's not been fun. Over the past three years, four years in churches, people have shifted from the idea that this is what anchors and unites us 
Two, what's really important is that you share the same viewpoint with me on an issue in culture or in society, and that will what unite us. We've switched from God's truth being the magnet to hold us all together to, hey, I, I, got, I got a different magnet. And I'm going to use this magnet, and I'm going to pull. If you don't come attached to this magnet, then no. Now, let, let me affirm us. Um, I, I regularly, frequently tell anybody I can. And, and um, <clears throat> I don't know my role right now, to be honest. I don't know. Like, it seems arrogant to say I feel like your dad. That's stupid. Um, do I feel like your coach? I don't know. That seems a little arrogant. All I know is this. I'm proud of us. I'm proud of you. Because through the past three years, when I almost every 14 days hear about, read about, see about a pastor who's like, I'm done, or a church that is just divided, I'm like, man, I'm so grateful for what Calvary's been like. We've navigated this, and through God's grace... Man, as a body, I'm grateful for how we've navigated. We had a person in our church in leadership at a ministry event recently who was there, and there was a pastor who's been in a church for 25 years, and a church that has a national reputation and an international reputation, a mega church, right? If I said the name, you'd be like, whoa, that's an impressive church, right? And this guy from Calvary was sharing with this pastor about the Sunday school class we just did, right? Where we, about 100 of us or so, spent six to seven, I don't know, eight weeks talking about culture and wisdom and truth and how Christians should think about political policy and whether abortion should be a litmus test. And this guy was like, what? <laughs> like, did the church split? And he's like, no, it was great. And he's like, man, we couldn't do that. We couldn't do that. By God's grace, we've done that. So, so this is not what I'm talking about now, beating up you. I've told you a thousand times, if I don't like the way you drive in the parking lot, I'm going to go out to the parking lot and tell you. I'm not going to have a sermon on five steps that godly people use when driving in the parking lot. Right? I don't attack people from here. So this is not to Calvary, but this is just some thoughts about the scope of evangelical churches in general. What's happened over the past three years is this. We've moved from saying, I will have unity with you because of this, to I will have unity, I will break unity with you unless you agree with me about that. We have moved from saying, I will have unity with you because of this, to I will break unity with you unless you agree with me about that. And you know what the that's were. If you've read anything about what's happened in evangelical churches, if you have any friends in evangelical churches, the that that's happened because the enemy has had a field day. He's, man, it's like an ice cream Sunday social for Satan when he looks at churches, when he looks at Christian families. Because what we, not we, we, but 
generally we, have allowed to happen is move from, you got a different idea? I'm going to have unity with you because of this. To, I'm going to break unity with you unless you agree with me about that. And the that, it almost sounds silly. This is almost going to sound silly. The that among people who have worshipped together for years was, unless you agree with me about my position on masks, I'm breaking unity with you. Unless you agree with me on my position on vaccines, I'm breaking unity with you. Unless you agree with me on my position about whether Christians should gather despite what the government body say, I'm going to break unity with you. Unless you agree with me about how churches should conduct themselves in light of the George Floyd situation and everything that rippled from that, I'm going to break unity with you. Unless you agree with me that that pastor or that church is woke, I'm going to break unity with you. And we have. And they did. And it's a mess. God has been so good to us. There's a bunch of you who haven't agreed with everything we've done. That's okay. There's a bunch of you who have what I just said. You have all sorts of opinions and positions on and thoughts about. That's okay. Because you're still here. And we're still together. And we made it. Man. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful. Some of you right now, the minute that I started talking about masks, vaccine, George Floyd, you got really uncomfortable. You did. See? I can tell you're laughing. That's what people do when you call them out in a sermon. You know what they do? They go, ha, 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 ha. You got really uncomfortable. And you thought to yourself, Smith, what are you doing? You did. You thought, why are you saying that? Why are you making us go back there? The reason you've thought that is because you weren't on my 19 and a half foot Monterey with me on the St. John's River on a hot summer day. I used to have a 19 and a half foot Monterey in Jacksonville, Florida. It is the best boating city in, man, I maybe even think the country, right? It's got this long St. John's River. You can boat to downtown. There's restaurants everywhere on the river. You can then go through downtown uh, through a commercial shipping lane and you can get out to the ocean through some jetties. Well, on, now, I don't know, again, some of you haven't really even seen the ocean, so I'm not sure you're going to be able to track with me. <laughs> there are 19 and a half foot boats, which are smaller than this stage. There are cargo ships, which are bigger than the town of Trumbull, right? So, I was on my boat one day, all by myself, zipping out, just loving it, and I said, man, I'm going to go out to the jetties. I'm going to hit the salt water and then zip around. To do that, I had to go through where... Shipping containers from across the ocean were coming into Jack's port. Those are big, big vessels, right? So I'm on my little 19 and a half foot. I'm zipping around, and I kind of know, know what I'm doing. But, man, there, there was this moment where these two or three ships and tugboats, they, they just all were coming in. And where they were coming in is where I had to go through. So I'm like, okay, I think. And, and man, the swell was starting. So I'm like, all right, baby. 
buckle up, here we go. So I, I got to get over the waves. So I took my 19 and a half foot boat over the waves. And after about two, I was doing okay. But then there was this one moment where you want, you want the bow of your ship to be like above the crest of the waves. But man, there was this moment where the angle was wrong, something's wrong, that I was under it. And those big cargo ship waves were rolling over the front of my bow. And my bow was now going down. And now they're starting to come uh, back towards the stern. And I thought, how am I going to tell State Farm Insurance about this? <laughs> That's literally what I thought. <clears throat> it almost swamped me. Like, honest to goodness, that was the one time I thought, ooh. And this is the boat, remind you, my wife wanted a couch. But I'm like, babe, we can't afford a couch. So she goes out of town, and I'm like, guess what I bought? You bought a couch. I bought a boat. That, I'm thinking to myself, a couch wouldn't have sunk. I got through it. I, woo, right? Had me a little sweet tea, kept zipping around, got to the jetties. But you know what I knew? This is what I knew. I knew I had to come back that same way. I knew just because I was through it didn't mean I was done with it. And I knew that when I came back through it, man, I had to be prepared. And I had to watch out. And I had to really make sure I had a good nautical foundation under me to get through that thing. Because just because I was through it didn't mean I was done with it. So I had to be prepared. As an individual Christian, just because you think you may be through something that has buffered your view on truth and caused you to drift, you're not done with it. You're not done with facing waves from worldviews that are contrary to the worldview expressed in this. In the third chapter of this story, there was an attack on truth. And that continues throughout all the pages of this story until about, I don't know, chapter 14 of the last book of the story. And your story is smack dab in the middle of this story. And we haven't gotten to chapter 17 of the story yet. The waves that are going to buffer you individually on ideas of truth haven't stopped. Just because you may be through it doesn't mean you're done with it. And Calvary Church, we are... We are one mask mandate away. We may be one election cycle away from being in it all over again. Just because we're through the past three years doesn't mean we're done with the waves that we might face that choose to divide and break and this unified us. And so we've got to prepare now because we're coming back around to it. And we've got to make sure that what by the grace of God didn't swamp us once won't swamp us the next time we go through it. And I mean it. I, sometimes I tell you there's nothing up my sleeves. There's something up my sleeves. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to prepare us so that we are united on what comes that could possibly uh, divide us, that we stand well amidst of that. And it's not me. It's the Lord, it's the Holy Spirit, and it's you.
So you know what we do? We talk about it. That's why we've had classes for seven or eight weeks. That's why we broke off and we did three weeks on racism. That's as an adult class. That's why the first four minutes into some of our gatherings, I'm like, oh boy, this is great. I just split a church. I just pulled a pin on a hand grenade and kaboom! But man, we got to talk about it because we got to be prepared. Because just because my little boat made it through once, man, I knew when I started turning around, coming back towards Jacksport, okay, I got to get ready and I got to be prepared and I got to be focused. Because what almost pulled me under once, I'm going to face again. And in light of that, John leaves his readers and us with a challenge. And here's the challenge in verses 10 through 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, uh, we got to understand what this means in this culture, because this could sound a little like, huh? Here's what it means. In that culture, when there were people who were traveling around, uh, traveling teachers, right, to churches, what would be the expectation is there were no Airbnbs. And so the people in those churches would be like, bro, I got a spare sofa. Come on over and hang out. And so traveling itinerant teachers would expect hospitality and hosting and financial support from the churches in which they went. And when someone in the church would open their house to that traveling teacher, they implicitly affirmed the teaching of that person. And what John is saying is, hey, when these false teachers come who are trying to divide the church, man, don't, don't partner with them. Don't partner with them. Now, this does not mean for you and me that we should not talk to people who believe differently than we. That would be ridiculous, right? Throughout Scripture, every godly person in the Bible is talking to people who believe differently than they do. This doesn't mean you shouldn't go out to dinner with somebody who has a different view on some of the issues that we talked. You should, right? But what this does mean is that you should not act in such a way that you partner with and either explicitly or implicitly support untruth. Support untruth. Here's the force observation, right? I just said it. We should neither explicitly nor implicitly support nor spread untruth. To do this, guess what you need? Guess what you need? You need to know what's true. You need to take personal responsibility. Don't bury your head in the sand. And no, don't expect anybody on the stage to tell you what is true on every single issue because there are tons of issues. We ain't got enough Sundays in the year. You got to man up, woman up, person up. And you need to take personal responsibility to get away to know what is true, and we are here to do everything we can to help you on that journey, but we can't do it for you. We can give you donuts on Sunday mornings, but I ain't going to come around and, like, shove them in your mouth. Come on. Because you know what happens if you don't do this? If you don't take responsibility to figure out what is true, you're going to drift. And if you're a mom, or if you're a dad, you're going to cause your family to drift with you. Choice to make. So, so I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to move to some other things. And next week, we're into 3 John, and cool book with a couple of different people with different stories we'll talk about. But let's just kind of end with what we've seen. And I'm going to ask you if you'd be willing to do something. Here's a few of the things that we've seen this morning, and we can pop the slide up, and let's just keep working through this. I might be in your way. I don't know, man. But, but here's what we've seen, right? We've seen that God's truth is the ultimate basis for unity among Christians. 
And so here's what I'm going to ask you. Are you willing to continue to look to the gospel and God's truth as the source for unity among the body? Are you willing to continually look to the gospel and God's truth as the source of unity among the body? Second thing that we saw from this letter written thousands of years ago is that Christians united in truth will experience blessings from those unified relationships. Are you willing to act in ways that help further the richness and the blessings that flow from being a unified body? Which means you won't act in ways that are contrary to that. Truth will be attacked. Are you willing to dig deeper to know what God's Word says about issues? Are you willing not to listen to what your friend says, not to listen to what Facebook says, not to listen to what CNN says, not to listen to what Fox News says about biblical things? Are you willing to go to the source to figure out what God's Word says about issues that you face. If you are and you don't know the first step, I am willing to have 287 coffees, and I will make myself available to help you. That's what we're here to do. Are you willing to do that? Last thing we've seen is we should neither explicitly nor implicitly support nor spread untruth. Are you willing to stand for what the Bible says is true, as opposed to spreading or condoning what is false. And if you are, man, I want to get in that minivan with you and let's see where God takes us. But if we're not, man, this minivan is going to be an unpleasant ride. Pleasant rides are much more pleasant. Man, great challenges. What are you going to build your life upon? What are you going to build your life upon? Let's sing and worship together, and then we get to celebrate some people who have an opportunity to spread some truth this coming week.